Good morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. We are, again, continuing our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, We are still in the throes, what I would say, of the the, the fall and its effect. Uh, It is is now, you might say, coming to its fullest fruition here as we come to Noah and the flood. And it's a dark part uh, of the story of the world before uh, the flood, this this what people call anti-diluvian, anti-deluge period, the period of people that lived, uh, it had reached a zenith of wickedness, and that's that's the text for us. So, so as we move into this, um, I think it's easy to get caught up in sort of the darkness, and I want us not to miss uh, the expression of God's faithfulness and salvation in the text and how he preserves uh, his promise as he uh, saves uh, humanity through Noah. But uh, just keep that in your mind, even as we kind of delve into the, dark, the darker part uh, of, of the text here. But let's turn to God's Word. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through chapter 7, verse 5. Genesis 6, 1 to, to, to Genesis 7. Five. You can turn with me there in your Bibles. It's printed for you in your bulletins as well. Hear God's word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in the side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is in the earth 
shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of creeping things of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a heavy word, uh, and yet it is a revelation not only of your justice and your wrath, but of your grace and your mercy. And so, Lord, as we come to it, show us your justice and your wrath and your grace and your mercy in Jesus. For we ask these in his name. Amen. Uh, When I was a kid, I'd go up into my, my dad's, in our attic, and in the attic, my dad had set up a uh, HO scale train set. Maybe some of you had that when you were kids. And I loved it. And those trains, you know, you'd set up, you'd set the, the train on the track, and then you'd have all the little boxcars behind it, and you'd put them together. And those, those trains, they would go around. Well, I loved it because I could turn it up pretty fast. And sometimes it would hit a curve, and the train would get derailed, right? And I'd put it back on, and then I'd go fast and get derailed again and keep getting derailed. And I think it may probably frustrated my dad. I don't know if he even remembers. But, um, but I would always get derailed because I wanted to see how fast I could go. Anyway, we, we're, we're coming to this text, and there's a lot in it that could derail us. Uh, there's a lot of things in here that can just take us off the track if we're not, if we're not paying attention. And we'll miss the big picture, miss the important things, miss the forest for the trees, as, as the saying goes. And so some of those things are, who are these sons of God and daughters of man? And who are the Nephilim? And who are the mighty men of renown? And how did Noah even know what a boat was? And what did all his neighbors think? And what is gopher wood? And, and on and on. We could ask all sorts of questions. Like, wow, how did they fit all the animals into the ark? And, you know, we can get into... Uh, these challenging questions. And the questions in and of themselves aren't wrong. Like they, I think our curiosity is a good thing. It, it helps us envision what's going on uh, in the text. Um, but I don't want them to distract you from the main thing, from the main purpose, the weighty matter of the text. And the weighty matter of the text is this. God is distressed. God is grieved at the wickedness of mankind Mankind whom he made as his image bearers to reflect his glory in the earth. And now they've reached 
such a height of wickedness that the Lord is ready to blot them off the face of the earth. But Noah. But Noah. Noah, who found favor in his eyes, becomes the avenue of God's redeeming grace for humanity. God provides a refuge of redemption through his servant, Noah, who faithfully obeys. We can easily get derailed in this text. We can miss those, the forest for those trees. We could spend all of our time determining who the Nephilim were. Or we could spend this morning, this time, considering our sin and our God, who is full of grace and mercy. And how he saves us from just judgment through Noah's greater son. My hope is, this is my hope, is that we would sing with the psalm, Psalm 46. There's this beautiful psalm, and it opens like this. It says these words, The Lord is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. May that be our cry as we look at this text. So I want to look at this hope. And the Lord is our refuge and strength in three parts. First, the Lord will not abide with sinful man forever. Second, there is grace in the midst of that judgment. And third and finally, I want to close with this picture of the Lord as our refuge and our strength, that ever-present help in time of trouble. So first, the Lord will not abide with sinful man forever. Uh, just a reminder of the background, what we've just looked at is the two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. You'll remember in the line of Cain, uh, we see all sorts of things, sort of the development of culture and civilization and cities and and yet it is a short line, and it is a line marked particularly by wickedness, right? If Cain murdered his brother and took revenge, his greater, his son, Lamech, uh, is seven times worse, who kills and wounds a man just for thinking bad things. And then the line of Seth is this line of blessing. It's this line of a promise. We see all this uh, language of how the people in this line called out, to the Lord and called on his name and how they walked with God. You have Enoch who never dies and he walks with the Lord. And you have these long lives and lifespans and we see this line of blessing that ends with Noah. But when we come to chapter 6 and we are looking at Noah, what we see is not blessing and fruitfulness, which is what we just came out of in the line of Seth, but what we see, what we uh, is revealed for us is that things are really, really, really bad. Really, really, really bad. And before we touch on the various things, like the intermarriage of these sons of God and these daughters of man and the Nephilim and all of that, and we'll just touch on them, um, I want to look at God's determination of the state of things, what he says things are like. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the heart was evil only continually. That is quite the determination. 
It's not like people were doing some evil here and there, or there was some bad stuff going down. No, it was. There was evil only always continually, and that was all. And it was embedded in the hearts of man. Things were really bad. Verse 11 says, again, in sort of a, a, another way, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Do you remember Cain's sin? Of course, Cain's sin was the murder of his brother. Well, his greater son, if you will, Lamech, greater, lesser, worse son, Lamech, his sin was also violence to the nth degree. And it seems like this was the thing that was, was part and parcel to the world of that day. There was violence everywhere. They turned. Things were really, really bad. And after chapter 5, this feels like a little bit of a shock, right? Chapter 5 was so lovely. It was beautiful. People calling on the name of the Lord, walking with God. But it's interesting. As we come to chapter 6, what, it, what, it, what I reflected on was those people in that line were the exception, not the rule. That even some of their children were part and parcel to what was going on in the world at the time of Noah. That Noah was the one only remaining in that line that everyone else around seemed to be doing evil only. The world is marked by wickedness and violence. It wasn't just Lamech from the line of Cain. Rather, he was just right in step with his generation. And the text alludes to some of the problems. So let's look at these things because they are a little bit vague to us, but we'll, we'll take a look at them. And it begins with these daughters born to man and these sons of God. Who are they? Okay, first of all, I want to just tell you, I don't know. <laughs> so anything I tell you right now is tentative. It's to hold it loosely. But I'll hopefully give you a few, a few options that are out there that scholars think are possibilities. One is scholars... Um, uncertain as they are, some think that these men of God are, in fact, angels or fallen angels, some who might have even been part of the council of God who would, who would be there in the throne room of God who fell and were seeing uh, these, these, these daughters of men and they were delightful to the eyes and they take them and they have unnatural relations with them and, uh, and that is somehow how the Nephilim are born or these men of renown, and so there's this, this concept that the angels are somehow intermixing. And this was, honestly, this is the ancient view. This was the view of the ancient Jewish people. They had a book called Enoch, First Enoch, that kind of dwelt on possibilities, on, on these speculations, and then one of these speculations was this. And so it was, it was an old view, and I think that, that means we should not take it lightly, that it could be possible. It may seem wild, crazy to you, and you know, there are some things in Scripture that might mitigate against that. In fact, Jesus himself says that angels didn't marry. Um, and so, may, was that even a possibility? I don't, I don't know. There's some questions, but that's at least an ancient view that's been held throughout the ages. Uh, a second line of interpretation is that these um, groups, or these sons of God, were in fact great rulers or great men, great kings, and that they were uh, like Lamech, taking for themselves multiple wives and kind of, kind of pushing their power around and doing the things that are wicked and evil and sort of promoting evilness and wickedness and, and, and breaking God's 
plan of, you know, one man and one wife, and that was the nature of it. And these sons of God, because in Scripture, sons of God is, can be used as a term of a person of great power, or a king, or a ruler. And so that's another possibility. Third interpretation, and one that I'm sort of maybe inclined towards, but again, I hold it loosely, uh, is that these groups uh, of people were in fact uh, tied to the genealogies that came before. So the sons of God were in fact part of that line of blessing and promise and all those people that walked with the Lord, people like Enoch and Methuselah and of course Noah and Seth and the like. And then the daughters of man were of the line of Cain. In fact, in the line of Cain, we'll note that, that we are given one of the daughter's names, Naamah, which seems to indicate this is one of those daughters, possibly. So, like, like the Israelites in Canaan, a few millennia later, uh, would often intermarry with the, the Canaanites when they weren't supposed to. So here, it was similar. The people of God were... were unequally yoking themselves and allowing sin to kind of be a part of their world. So, anyway, I'm going to stop there. I think I lean toward that last one. But really, it doesn't matter. The main issue is that whatever the case was, it was wrong. God looks on, he sees what's happening, and he says this, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he and his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And here's another, one of the, the rabbit trails. Um, does God limit the, the age? Oh, I mean, generally people live about this long. But as Isaac pointed out, this could also be referring to the time before the flood comes. So 120 years and then my judgment is coming. Either one. Either way, God won't contend with sin. That's the problem. What about the Nephilim? I have no idea. The only thing I'll say about them is we, we come across them later in Scripture. Did you know that? So when in the, 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 the Israelites, and remember, this is written by Moses. Moses is writing this, and this is God's word for them as they're about to enter into the promised land. They're on the plains of Moab. Well, the generation right before that had gotten to the plains of Moab and sent some spies into the land. And when they sent those spies into the land, they came back and they say, there are these giants in the land. They're big and strong and powerful. And the scripture says that they were the sons of Anak who were descendants somehow from these Nephilim. That's all, we've got. That's all I've got. Um, they were somehow big, powerful men, giants of some sort. Whatever the case is, they represent evil. Mm -hmm. They represent the wickedness of man. Yeah. We don't understand all the details and what it means, but what it tells us is that these things were part of the evil that was going on at the time. Things were really, really, really bad. And I want to stop here and consider what this text has to do with us, with our world, with the world after the flood. First and foremost, what we learn from this text is that God is holy. He is holy. He is just. He does not abide with sin forever and he will bring about his judgment against sin. He will deal with it. 
And this is also one of those fundamental realities of faith that we quickly, as people of this world, want to jettison. We don't want to deal with it. We want to say things like, but God is love. Maybe the God of the Old Testament was like that, a little bit you know, spiteful and angry. But this is, we have Jesus, and Jesus is about love, and we don't need to talk about judgment and wrath and justice and holiness and all that stuff. This is a, a different time period, a different time frame. Friends, Jesus preached judgment. In Matthew chapter 11, he looks at these cities of uh, of surrounding in, Ju- in, in, in Israel, and he says, woe to you. Woe to you. Sion and Tyre, those, those, those pagan cities over, the, over there, are not even going to face the kind of wrath that you're going to face for rejecting me when you, in, when you are abiding in hell. Jesus says this of the cities that he ministered in. Woe to you. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus preaches about the coming of the Son of Man, and he says these very words. He says, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says, just like this event back in the ancient world, just like this, Jesus' coming is going to happen, and judgment is coming. Yeah, but Rob, let me, let me give you some advice, Rob. If you preach on judgment and sin, I guarantee the church will not grow. You'll be like those caricatures in the movies of Christian ministers, thumping their Bibles, telling everyone they're going to hell. And I'm telling you, Rob, market research tells us that you need to downplay that. You need to lower the volume. Just do away with it. The problem is that even if I were to downplay it, even if I were to dismiss it, if I were going to pretend God was not judge, doesn't mean he isn't. Doesn't mean he isn't. We come to these texts and we are reminded of this sobering truth. God will not abide with sinful man forever. Don't be fooled into thinking you will somehow escape. Friends, as sure as the sun rises, so will the righteous judge of heaven and earth come again. Don't be lulled into complacency by the seeming long delay in God's coming to judge. Second Peter uses this very language when he says, you, you know, you mockers, you mock, oh, things have always been as they ever were. Nothing's going to change. Jesus isn't coming again. He says, have you forgot about the flood? A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. Don't be lulled. But friends, remind you of this. His delay is patience. It's patience. This is the time to repent and turn. If you're here this morning and you have yet to, to trust in this God, let me, let me encourage you. He is one who will judge you for your sin. He will come and he will judge you for your sin. Death is sure, but you have an opportunity to repent and to believe, to trust in the God who is patient towards you and gracious. And believer, 
you're here. You're like, amen. God is coming again. Judgment is coming and things are going to be made right. Amen. But friends, we have a responsibility. There's a world outside of here that is eating and drinking and being happy and has no idea what is to come. Are we just holding it in here and telling ourselves, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. The world needs to know. That's grace when you go out and you present the good news and the hope of salvation. Believer, don't be lulled into complacency either. Some of you are just like, I'm a, I'm a believer, but I don't want to change my life. My life, I can do what I want. Jesus is full of grace. I'm happy. Peter reminds us we ought to be sober-minded, preparing ourselves for that coming day, starting to live that life that follows Jesus, that looks like him, as we prepare for the day when we will be with him in glory, looking like him. Let's start now. Start now. Friends, believers, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. He will not abide with sinful man forever. But my second point, there is grace in the midst of judgment. Everything right now in the text is doom and gloom. God is ready to blot out man and beast and to start over. But Noah, except for this one man, Noah, the text says, but Noah found favor. When you see that word favor, what Noah found favor. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of God. We'll learn about the character of Noah in just a second. But before we learn anything about the character of Noah, we learn that God had grace towards him. And this is the story that we have seen even throughout every page that we've read up to this point in Genesis. Adam is created. God graciously, he has favor on him. He places him in the garden. He provides for his every need. He makes him a perfect helpmate in Eve. They are complimentary. They enjoy fellowship. They enjoy God's grace and blessing. Adam and Eve sinned, but God was gracious to them. He curses the serpent and promised salvation through the seed of the woman. He clothes them promising that inheritance that would come. Cain sins. God is merciful to him, gives him that common grace, doesn't destroy him, but allows him to live even though Cain persists in his rebellion. But he had that opportunity to repent. Grace. Eve has another son, Seth. God's grace is evident when she says, God appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Enoch walked with God. That's God's grace. Every page of Scripture is marked by God's grace. Unmerited favor. Something we don't deserve. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, Enoch, and all the rest. Noah. And you and me. God is gracious to us. It's full of mercy, and it's abundant, and it's free. Nowhere told is a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that he walked with God. Hebrews tells us that by faith Noah builds the ark. He is a man of God, a man of faith who humbly walks before God. But even this, even this character of, of Noah, his faith, 
His righteousness, His blamelessness, all of it are marks of God's grace in His life. God's good pleasure on Him. I think as Christians, we get this backwards. I do. I think we get this backwards because I get it backwards. If I'm good enough, then God will be gracious to me. Right? Yeah? If I'm good enough, if I drum up enough righteousness, if I just muster up enough faith, then God will show me his favor. That's how we do it. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord before we learn anything about his righteousness. Another way of putting this is God looked on him with his loving eyes. He looked on Noah with his loving eyes. Friends, it was not by mere chance that there was one man left. Don't think that, oh, God is ready to destroy everything. He, oh, Noah, well, you're different from the rest. And Noah was God's plan. God's plan of redemption for his people. God looked on him with favor so that his divine plan of salvation would come to pass. I fear that we, I mean by that I, spend an inordinate amount of my days worrying if I've done enough to measure up to God. And here's the truth. I haven't. I haven't even come close. The the reality is so much worse than I imagine. My sin, as much as I try to kill it off, as much as I want to, somehow persists and even grows sometimes. Have you experienced that as a Christian, that frustration where you're like, but I'm a Christian, this shouldn't go on and on. Why do I keep doing it? Noah knew this. We'll see in a few weeks to come. The flood didn't cleanse the earth of all sin because Noah and his family were sinners. Right after they start all fresh and new, the rainbow, the covenant, all the animals out of the ark, the land is fresh and clean. We had that huge thunderstorm. And right after the thunderstorm, there was this beautiful rainbow right out our front window. And we could, it was like literally in the road. Like we could see it from beginning to end. It was like everything was made new. And immediately after that, Noah sins. His son sins. And it continues. We see his faithfulness. We see his blamelessness. But all of that is only by the grace of God. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, the grace of the Lord is sufficient to save you. It is sufficient to transform you. It is sufficient to take a heart that apart from God's grace is thinking evil thoughts only all the time. God's grace is sufficient to break that down and to transform you more and more into the likeness of His Son. Yes, not perfectly now, but in glory, complete. God's grace is sufficient to change your heart from a heart of stone that has nothing to do with God, that wants nothing to do with God, to a heart that beats for God that says, I believe. God's grace is sufficient. Did you notice in the text... Noah hardly says anything at all. Like, we almost get nothing from Noah. Uh, All we see of Noah is that God tells him to build the ark, to get the animals, to use these materials, to do this and that. And all it says is that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. 
Twice. That's all we hear. Noah did all that God commanded him. And let me ask this question. How is Noah's response anything other than God brought faith in his heart? Let's think about this for a moment. Who else would build a 440-foot box in the middle of an arid land with uh, a world around them looking on? Who would do that? Who else would approach lions and tigers and usher them into this said box and then go live with them? Who would do that? I spent a lot of time on boats. As you might know, I love boats. If you've ever been on a boat for any length of time, they can be claustrophobic. Especially if you spend a night in a boat, you're right there with everybody snoring away. I'm the one that snores. They were packed like sardines. Apart from God's grace, giving Noah that that longing for God and obedience towards God and faith in God, who would do such a thing. There's no other way to explain this other than God's grace in Noah's life. And guess what, friends? This is good news for you. God's grace is present even amidst the darkest places and at the most evil times. Not only is God's grace present, but it is sufficient for you. Like the great hymn says, right? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night, but thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, that is the divine grace of God shining down on you. Grace, sufficient. There is grace in the midst of the darkness of sin and in the face of God's judgment. God's gracious eye diffuses the ray of gospel-transforming light. Friends, don't despair. Don't despair. Turn and see the wondrous grace of God in the light of Jesus. Finally, and in conclusion, the Lord is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. We can't help and wonder, do we live today in the days of Noah? When we look around at the world around us, we can't help but ask the question, isn't evil being done continuously all the time, everywhere we go? Isn't that the the nature of the world we live in? It feels that way. I would suggest to you that I think Christians throughout history have always felt that way. Always. Jesus indicated in that Matthew passage that I read earlier uh, that about the time of Noah that they were living in the time of Noah. All Christians throughout history are living in the time of Noah. And we're living in the time of Noah. Um, and we can feel swamped and overwhelmed by the world around us, by the evil that kind of pervades everything. Um, I often think, like, as, as somebody who loves history, and always think kind of pull myself out of my current world and think, how will, you know, a hundred years, a thousand years from now, how will they look back on our generation? You ever do that kind of in your mind? Like, what will they say about our, this period? And I would simply say this, I think we will look back, the, the, if there is a future that will look back, they will look back and 
They will see things, we see a lot of sin, but they will see things we don't even see, the extent of the wickedness going on in our society because we're swimming in it. We don't even notice it. It just pervades our life. We think it's normal. But we also feel, as I noted above, that it deserves the judgment of God, right? We, we long for that. And so I want us to think about God's provision here in a couple ways. First, what does God provide? First, he provides a man, a man after his own heart, a man who will faithfully do all that he asks. Noah is God's provision. Noah is God's provision. He is a provision for humanity at that time, that through Noah, humanity would not be wiped off the face of the earth, and not all, and along with him, all the creatures, but they would be preserved through the flood by this one man, this righteous man. Noah is not perfect. But in this way, as he obeys, as he builds the ark, as he ushers those animals into the ark, as he packs the ark full, as he brings his family onto the ark, as the door is shut for him, he prefigures the work of Jesus Christ, saving God's people. It's a picture. It's a little window into God's salvation. Look at this man here, Noah. And now consider the greater man, Jesus. The one in whom we find refuge. The one whom we hide ourselves in. Jesus is called a rock, right? That, that rock that we hide ourselves in and cling to so tightly. Through whom we have a refuge. Jesus said, you know, to, in that little illustration, you know, the man who builds his house upon a rock will not be washed away, right? That's us in Jesus, the, the greater Noah, if you will. But second, God not only provides a man, God provides an ark. The only other place in Scripture where this word for ark is used, it's not ark of the covenant. It's a different, that's a different word for ark. The only place where this, and again, I'm going to thank Isaac for heading me down this trail. Um, uh, the, the, that it's used is actually in the story of Moses. You'll remember Moses was um, uh, a little baby, and there was a, a decree by Pharaoh to kill all the children, all the male boys under one years old. And so, so M Moses' mom takes little baby Moses and puts him into a little basket. And this little basket is called an ark. That little basket floats down, and Pharaoh's daughter sees it and picks up baby Moses and takes her as his own. And Miriam comes alongside and says, oh, I can help with you. I can help out um, Moses' sister. And, and God's people are preserved because Moses is preserved. Later on, Moses will carry God's people through the Red Sea, preserving them through the waters, redeeming them. And of course, all of that's just a picture of Jesus again. So the ark is God's provision for, for us. God did not only provide Noah with instructions on building it, but he gave him the know-how, the energy, the protection, the time, the resources to build it. God provided all that he needed that we, humanity, might be saved. Third thing that God provided, all that they needed to restart civilization. You know, like all these animals, all the details of the food being stored away, all of this was a sign of God's provision. God was taking care of the people. And you'll have everything you need. All the way down to the unclean animals, you take two by two, but those clean animals take extra because you can, 
You can use them for sacrifice. You can eat them. These will become uh, provision down the road. These clean animals. God graciously provides a person, a place, and all they need in provision. As we consider what it means to follow God, let me ask this question of you. Do you know the provision that God has given you? Do you know the provision of Jesus? Do you know the salvation that we have in Him, the security that we have in Him? Do you know all the blessing that we have through Him by His Spirit that you've been given all that you need for faith and godliness? There's nothing you lack for the journey. He's provided Himself. And look around you. Here's a little picture of an ark. You never might have thought this way, but here is God's people, God's church gathered together you know, with all that we need, the proclamation of the word, the food of the fellowship, we have the blessing of the, all the sacraments, the, the prayers of God's people, the fellowship that we have with one another. God provides all that we need. All that we need. His ultimate provision, of course, is himself. I said at the very beginning that the sin of man deserves the wrath of God, that this is a sure thing. God will not abide with sin forever. He will deal with it. Friends, in Jesus, he has dealt with it. He has dealt with your sin. He has dealt with my sin. The Lord Jesus bore the full brunt of the flood. And so much more. He endured the wrath and curse of his heavenly father for you. That he would provide a way of salvation. Do you know that? Do you rest in that? As you walk out of here today, our our hope is that you would sing this song again that we said at the beginning. The Lord is our refuge and our strength. An ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. We have Jesus. Let's pray.